Hello, this is Kat. And this is Phoebe. We're Feminine Chaos. We sure are. So Phoebe, I met some in the wild Feminine Chaos listeners the other day. No. Yes. Really? They exist. Wow. Um, I went to a party for an, another podcast, not ours. Uh, it was actually a little intimidating slash aspirational. The Bar Pod New York Meetup organized oh, wow. by Jesse I want to hear about that. I want to hear about that. Uh, it was the latest I've stayed up in ages and also the loudest room I've probably ever been in in my life. Um, the yeah, Bar Pod folks like, are lovely, respectful bunch, but they like to party. And they filled this entire bar in Midtown New York, like to capacity. Um, And so, yeah, I I went and I met some folks from the internet, but also some folks uh, who are podcast listeners. And I want to just um, say hello to them, Katya and Jane, among others. Um, but those were the names that I got that I definitely remembered. They were they were so lovely, um, and it was it was super fun to see how not just um, nice, but frankly, incredibly physically attractive our feminine chaos listeners are. I simply assume I simply assume it's just all supermodels, um, and I'm personally sitting here looking fantastic and definitely not in what I slept in. Yeah, same, same. I will also say, compared to the rest of the bar pod crowd, which was approximately 10,000 people, I will just say that these two women were um, much more beautiful than everybody else in the room. So, you know. Well, <laughs> it, it, it stands to reason. It stands to reason. So when are we going to start having events? It might take us a minute. We could have these two women somewhere. Yeah, we could fill a bathtub with our listeners, mm. um, which would be fun, intimate, um, <laughs> you know. Well, there would probably be then some other listeners would arrive to see that, but... Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, we may have to come up with a gimmick to get anywhere close to bar pod numbers. Maybe that that mud pit bikini wrestling match that we're always talking about doing. Not really the season for that, though, here in Canada. No, no, nor in Connecticut. Frozen mud, yeah. But this is good. We have uh, we have a plan for when it gets warm. So this gives us what, like, I mean, when does it warm up? Another eight months from now? Eight, nine months? It gives us nine yeah. months to plan. We can gestate our plan. Uh, for nine months, and then give birth to a bikini mud wrestling match that everybody will, uh, if not enjoy, at least tolerate for the sake of their love of the podcast. I think that's a plan. But in the meantime, so while I was while I was living large uh, at the bar yes. pod meetup, <laughs> um, some people are living small. Some people don't have as much. You see, that's so tragic. Isn't it sad when people don't have as much? And you should think of them around the holidays, right? You know, like the the New York Times has famously something called the neediest cases right mm-hmm. like this charity that's that you give to specific people who are and you hear their story and and their plight and it, it's often really really upsetting it's some sort of mix of like job woes medical woes something sad involving children so always very sad so along similar lines the new york times has a column called living small so do you want to hear the description of what living small is can i just take a guess first I'm going to guess, based on what you just described, that it's like 12 people, um, three unemployed, six very sick with various medical woes, and then three tiny children all crammed into a very, very small space. I'm picturing something like uh, like Charlie Bucket's closet-sized house in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Exactly. Yes. So living small, per the description, 
is a bi-weekly column exploring what it takes to lead a simpler, more sustainable, or more compact life. Okay, okay. So you would think, you would think that it was bare minimum something about like profiles. It's in the real estate section, okay? So you might think, okay, this is about people who live in an expensive city such as New York. Um, and it's in a small apartment, something like that, you know, but they're making the most of it. They've got sort of hacks for organizing it well, and they've decorated it really artistically or whatever, right? You might imagine something like that. Yeah, of course. For living small or tiny houses around the world, whatever. So living small is something that we have actually <laughs> discussed before on this podcast when there was that man who built his own log cabin for himself and his dog. Right. And it cost like a gazillion dollars to do it. But it anyway. It was small though. But it was small. It was 600 square feet. Mm-hmm. So this living small is a is 6,000 square feet. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> this family makes do, okay? They make do with only 6,000 square feet of- Three zeros. 6,000. Six, zero, zero, zero square feet. Wow. Now- do you think that would be like, would you be able, Kat, I have to ask you this, because this is an important, you know, we have to give our priors, you know, would you be able to manage in only 6,000 square feet? Um, come talk to me after the holidays when I've expanded kind of Jabba the <laughs> hut like into a, a giant blob slug creature. I might need, I mean, all 6,000 feet for myself, at least, but I, I think I could probably still manage oozing from room to room. But could you? <laughs> No, I can't imagine what it would be like to live in such such tiny squalor. Um, so <laughs> 6,000 square feet, I guess that's about six times the size of my house, yeah. maybe? Something like and that, Same. approximately that, that sort of ratio-looking thing. I'll be generous. I'll say it's five times the size of my house, which I think is actually... Five times twelve. Yeah. Okay. It's exactly. It's exactly five times the size of the house that I live in. So maybe. Okay. It might be five for me. I don't know. I'm not sure what our our square footage is. Look, we're it, podcasters. We don't do math. Yeah, exactly. Or at least not very well. Um. So there's this article, and uh, credit to the. I, I don't know. So we can talk about where where he stands on this. We think or not. Um, Tim McKeough, I guess uh, the journalist. Um, wrote this article, their Cape Cod home isn't small, but its carbon footprint is. <laughs> and it's about uh, this couple and the man, Mr. Montero, uh, 51, has used his investment company, blah, 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 something or other. He, um, he's some kind of, what, did it, what is it that he did? Um, some kind of, he, what was it? He's like some sort of tech person who... Um, He's behind something called Impactful Ventures. It's capital M and then Pactful hmm. Ventures. Hmm. Compensating for something, maybe. Their Cape Cod home isn't small, but his wiener is. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm done. <laughs> um, so it's just, so they bought this house, okay, in a, a 1980s house, so not a really old house, um, for $2.6 million. They bought it as a second, they bought their second home as an escape. What an escape makes it sound a little bit more dire than it is. I think as a vacation home, but an escape. In 2019, they bought it for $2.6 million. And then the amount that they uh, spent renovating it was, um, it, it had the, oh, yes. Okay. 
Construction took about two years because of pandemic-related delays, but the house was complete in July 2022 at a cost of about ready for some more number some more math this is gonna be very math heavy okay okay but you need the math okay one thousand two hundred dollars a square foot for the renovation so this some uh, another um blogger sort uh alex berenson calculated what this meant in terms of how many square feet like what this all ended up costing excuse me while i whip out a calculator 7.2 million dollars on a renovation, basically. On a renovation. But it's not a renovation. They not they they be, in the name of sustainability. So this is where this gets really exciting. They're so into sustainability that they tore down the house fully and put up a new one because they care so much that they were like, this house has to go put all that in the put all of that <laughs> out in the green bin, <laughs> compost it. Yes, I was gonna say sustaining the <laughs> landfill and scrap slash salvage business single handedly uh, for years to come. Yeah, so they tore down the house, put up a new house, or hired people, obviously, to do this. And um, they seem very into hemp, and that sounds but more exciting than it is. Is the house made of hemp? The house is made of hemp. The house is lined with hemp. Love that for them. Okay, okay. And they, yes, because they are just much more, um, and they're into local, local, okay? So they, um, and they got rid of all the plastic insulation and threw that into the plastic recycle into the sea (laughs) (laughs) exactly they replaced petroleum-based foam insulation i'm quoting from the article around the foundation with recycled foam glass aggregates for soundproofing they used some kind of hemp wool hemp hemp and instead of choosing an exotic hardwood like ipe for the exterior decking they used locally harvested black locust aren't you aren't you proud of them I, i really am so it's just like, I mean, the whole thing. Okay, but my favorite part of it, though, is um, this This was something about the hemp lime, which is the hemp. I keep reading this as hemp turd, but it's hemp herd, H-U-R-D. <laughs> I, my, my brain sees turd. I'm sorry. <laughs> it just does. And it's just how it is. It's hemp, it's hemp turd, which comes from the woody part of the hemp plant. As opposed to hemp turd, which comes from the plant's asshole. Exactly. Um, so anyway, the walls are finished with the hemp excretions. Okay, and then I'm quoting again from the article. The only problem, spraying is the most efficient way to apply the hemp line, but they couldn't find an American installer with the necessary expertise and equipment. Hmm, not everybody has the necessary equipment. It's true. Um, their solution was to assemble a team of French Canadian and American specialists and import the spray rig from France. Okay, hold on. You have to import your spray rig from France because if you if it's not from France, <laughs> it's merely a sparkling spray, sparkling spray rig, sparkling hemp turd. <laughs> I think this might be the sparkling hemp turd. Okay, uh, edition. Okay, so um, I have questions about. The- oh, and oh my god! Oh my! Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry! But I forgot a part. They did something that was quote eliminating the need for wood sheathing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I need a minute. Okay. Yes. Sheathing. Okay. Wood sheathing. You got to sheathe the wood sometimes. Sometimes Okay. I can't take it. Okay. I need to get myself under control here. I don't think I'm going to be able to. I think this is just... (laughs) 
But no, please, I have to ask about the importation of the of the spray rig because like we're talking about sustainability here. How did they bring this rig over? Was it on a sailboat? Because otherwise, I'm not so sure about these carbon footprint claims. Well, so it seems to like when I read between the lines, these are not like people when when people talk about sustainability, they mean a few different things. And sometimes it's about the planet. And other times it's about personal consumption and what you feel that you should or should not have to subject yourself to being near. So there's a little line in this that says something about that. Um, okay. As they began designing, Mr. Montero questioned nearly every conventional building material, I bet he did, and method proposed, hoping to reduce associated greenhouse gas emissions while also making choices that were good for human health. My thinking is that this gazillionaire tech bro who um, I think it's tech bro, some sort of bro, although he's um, he's not, if he's 51, he's, he's, a, no, he's a pa, tech pa. I don't know. <laughs> he um, He's into the health aspects of this for his own family. Like we shall not touch any BPAs. You know what I mean? Like I think it's that type of mindset. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know sense. what I mean? Like, and I think that's, yeah, I think this is more about having a really, really nice house, which, you know, if I had a gazillion dollars, I'm sure I too would want to like make everything to my specifications. Cause like I look around my house and I see so many things I would change. And I just know that like, even on the really small level, like I'm not going to go out and buy all new curtains because that would cost money and we're prioritizing, you know what I mean? Like, but I could see if you have like infinite money and you can just pick every single thing you would do that. You wouldn't be like, whatever. Or if you care, I guess some people probably would be like, whatever, because they are interested in whatever their work is and they don't care what their house looks like. But I don't know. this. I, I, so the fact that this is a living small column, though, is interesting. Yes. I, I do think that the tongue of the New York Times writer was planted firmly in his cheek as he was covering this. There are, there are little hints here and there. Okay, I agree with you, but I'm curious what, what, what are the tells? I think it's the juxtaposition of the, okay, um, the paragraph about them importing the spray rig from France is immediately followed <laughs> by a paragraph that says, but that wasn't enough. Mr. Montero and Mr. Trittington also wanted to reduce greenhouse gas emissions related to the production of other materials used in the house. For mm -hmm. the concrete foundation, they specified a custom mix with less Portland cement, which generates carbon dioxide during manufacturing, and more fly ash, an industrial byproduct fly ash. Okay, we got hemp turd fly ash. Ash <laughs> and sheathed wood. Okay, then would normally be used. So I think, like, you talk about importing a spray rig from France, which, like, there's really no way to do this without causing greenhouse gas emissions. That thing is coming across the ocean on some kind of, you know, fuel powered vehicle. And the Concorde, I would assume. <laughs> Maybe. Did they just dangled it below the plane? No, no, on top, like um on was it Romney's car with the dog? Yes. God, that's a deep cut. Um but anyway, so like I don't know. I, I think that there's a little bit of um kind of illustrating the inconsistency, let's say, of uh, of these folks by positioning these two paragraphs one right after the other. Yeah, I mean, the, I think that's that's definitely a clue. And also just the whole thing about, um, where was this in the article about, okay, the, this line, the resulting 6,000 square foot structure isn't small, but it does have a small carbon footprint. 
it just seems a little like, I don't know, what if that's tongue in cheek? I mean, I think this is always the thing with these lifestyle articles, that they have to both flatter the people who are being written about and be hilarious for the reader or angering or whatever. Um, right. And, and this is the thing, like, I guess somebody had, so I blogged about this and somebody commented, like, why do people want to be in this? And it's obviously that they see this as positive publicity about themselves. Right. Cause like, it's clear why if you're at the company that's spraying the rig or sheathing the wood or whatever, that's publicity for your company. that's pretty straightforward. But <laughs> if you're the people who own the house, why, why do you want to be written about but it's like, because you're rich and you have a big house and you want it in the newspaper, I guess. And you're proud of your big house. Yeah, you're proud of your house. You think it's beautiful. I mean, I'm I'm looking at the pictures of, of this house and I, I'm sort of amused by the fact that they made the choices they did because the house is on Cape Cod. And um, they've made selections in terms of the the way they've decided to do things that I think are somewhat at odds with how sandy it's going to be in there like all the time. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. You know what? It's not my house. They can do what they want. And they have a special sand butler, I would assume. <laughs> it's a hemp powered robot. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, I look at this type of color scheme and I just think, okay, you spent a lot on your IKEA. Like, I don't know. It, to me, this doesn't seem very I feel like if I had infinite money to play around with, I would do something with a little bit more um, pizzazz. I agree. I agree. Well, I will say this is probably the one relatable aspect of any of this. I'm really reaching here, but that they decided to spend their gajillions of dollars on a house instead of like what some rich people do, which is um, buy sports cars. Oh, I, th I bet they're doing all of these things because, like, they. I think from what I read about this, it seems like this was a true drop in the bucket for them. This this house. Well, then, then I don't know. I, I hate them and hope they die. In their <laughs> no, but, but here's so here's here's the part that really got to me and that got me very frustrated. Okay. Okay. Um. So. This is from the slideshow. I, I didn't just let this be, right? Who could do that? Who could let this be? Okay. When selecting furniture and rugs, they chose renewable natural materials like cotton, linen, wool, and hemp, avoiding plastics and synthetics. So they used expensive stuff. Okay. Yeah. Of course. It's, not, it's a nice house. But just, so what gets to me about this is just this idea that if you're rich and have a lot of money to spend on your stuff, that you're just a better person. And that's that's like, as succinct as I can go, and I, I don't generally go very succinct, as we all know, that that's the problem here. Pretending that because you can afford nicer stuff, you're a better person, you care more about the environment. This is their second home, right? They have two, mm -hmm. at least. That's not very sustainable, you know, if they're so into being sustainable. But then the but like if I have crap made out of plastic in my house, you know, that's very unsustainable. But they, in their second house that's 6,000 square feet, have cotton, linen, wool, and hemp. Lots of hemp, we've established. It's just that somehow the stuff about the, like, the smaller scale stuff I can better understand. Like, I don't know what insulation is sprayed in my house. Like, I know that we had asbestos removed. I guess there's less asbestos than there once was. Um, but yeah, I don't know, actually. Maybe there's no more asbestos, hopefully. But Whatever. We'll just spray the hemp when we import our rig from France later today. Right. Um, it'll be uh, it'll be flown over individually by uh, like carrier pigeons. So it's going to take a while. But I wish you luck with it. Well, thank you. Thank you. So I don't know how we're going to segue, though, uh, because well, it's such a totally different 
totally different vibe, as they say, the young people. Well, we've been we've been having fun. Now let's talk about something that's not fun at all. But first, let's um, just mention that we are Feminine Chaos. We are a podcast. And if you are enjoying this conversation and would like to hear more like it, we invite you to join us on Substack at femchaospod.substack.com. For $5 a month, you will receive access to at least two, sometimes three, premium subscribers only episodes per month, as well as early access to our public episodes. We also do comment threads, AMAs, and are building a nice community of, as I said, extremely attractive, eligible, beautiful podcast <laughs> listeners. Please join us. Perfect. So um, yes, having lived lightly, we're going to live more heavily. Oh God, uh, I feel like I should put some like somber segue music in here. But you and I have both been writing about a topic. My my piece on this is going to come out later this week. So I guess by the time it's up for public consumption, the piece will be out. And yours came out a couple a couple weeks ago, a week ago. Which, uh, I don't remember when anything I've written has appeared, but I know I've I've written things. I've done, definitely been doing that, and I'm also podcasting additionally on this for the Canadian Jewish News. But yeah, it's about a phenomenon that has uh, at least we've come up with a whimsical sort of, I don't know, not portmanteau, but phrase to capture this phenomenon. I've heard it described as me too, unless you're a Jew. Yes. So there's now a hashtag for this. And um, right, right. This was something I wrote about last week. Um, But I feel like it's, it's become, as always, I'm always too early on something and then like kicking myself for not waiting a little bit to share the thought because basically um there was just this uh thing where Cheryl Sandberg sorry I have to just open the link to see what it actually is that I'm talking about um a meeting at the UN organized in part by Cheryl Sandberg basically a lot of people don't really care about <laughs> there having been that Hamas went and raped and really brutally brutally raped uh, women and girls uh, in Israel, right? On October 7th, a lot, of, a lot of sort of meh about that, a lot of denials about it. And also a lot of, um, well, what I've been seeing a bunch of is that you can't weaponize this, that, that to talk about it is basically that it's the same as like, it's, it's the, the, the same argument you get people saying that like, it's weaponizing the Holocaust to say that you don't want Jews dead and that Jews should be able to fight back or whatever, that that's... Um, not doing honor to the memory of dead Jews, or in this case, raped and murdered Jews. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a very interesting, uh, I mean, by interesting, I mean, kind of repellent example of that thing that happens online where people are like, it's not happening, but it's also good that it that it's happening. Or in this case, it didn't happen. But if it did happen, it was justified. Um, or, or, you know, or, or Israel has done so much worse. So why do you even care about these rape murdered women right right so this came up in actually um there was just some tweet from the some columbia university social work group that had they were going to have some kind of meeting to talk about like to celebrate october 7th as resistance or something like this do you know what i'm talking about yes i think there was a poster featuring a dove but also a machine gun or a, a assault rifle which you know they go together those two things. You can use the assault rifle to shoot the dove of peace, I guess. Anyway. Um, but yeah, it was this, it was this thing where, um, okay, was it the 
Sorry, I I will have it. Oh, yes. Okay, significance. The poster says significance of the October 7th Palestinian counteroffensive. Teaching and discussion. Columbia School of Social Work, room, whatever, whatever. It's happening tomorrow. Oh, definitely. I'll, I'll be there. It actually is. It is not happening anymore. Apparently, it was shut down. But anyway, okay. go well, that on. Seems, that seems perhaps justified. Um, yeah, so this idea that like, well, the Palestinians have tried really hard, really peacefully all of these years and then just couldn't take it anymore and had to just, you know. Do a bunch of rapes and murders. Do a bunch of rapes and murders yeah. because that's, um, and so especially the rapes seems to be the really like, what what is exactly the, because that, that seems to be really where it's like, what is the explanation there? And um, yeah, so I did have a few theories about this because so what I kept seeing was the way it was phrased by a lot of people was sort of like, why is it that all the usual suspects who care so much about women and rape and all of these concerns don't care now? And I did not actually find this mysterious in the least. I mean, I have to admit like that, you know, I was one of these people. I wrote a, I don't know what we call them, tweets. I'm still calling them tweets. I'm sorry. They're um, tweets. That went like wildly viral in a way I wasn't really expecting, but I noted that it's strange, um, particularly to consider the reaction to something like the Brett Kavanaugh allegations, which resulted in this, I mean, like I think we can now call it like a f- kind of a farcical spectacle. Like we had the 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 guy's high school yearbook blown up at a congressional hearing. Like it was a letter from the Zodiac killer, and everyone's analyzing it. Like, what does boofing mean? What is the Devil's Triangle? And then it's been only five years since that, and now it's like I don't know, guys. Like maybe maybe the naked, brutalized, bloodied corpse that has its pelvis broken just was like that when Hamas got there. You know. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't laugh, but it's it's horrible. I mean, it's just like it's so upsetting. And um yeah, I mean, when I first saw this, I also tweeted or whatever about like the the whole sort of like age gap relationships, right? Remember how it was a violence if like a 50-year-old is with a 49-year-old? Yes, yes. So, it there was something like strange to me about this that like it's just but not strange like it's not actually so my take on this is that it's not actually surprising it's just annoying upsetting jarring it's fucking depraved i'm sorry it really is whatever yeah but it, i don't find but whatever it is it's not surprising so i have i think how many theories i think my editor put numbers in which was helpful um yes i had five theories so one is that october 7th seems like a really long time ago for a lot of people and like basically a million years ago and who cares um although i don't think that that's that there's much to that theory because this was already treated like ancient history on October 8th. Like there were already people sort of like, well, it, what matters already is that Israel will retaliate. And and what matters is what Israel did before it, whatever, you know, you're already getting that before Israel really did anything in response to specifically October 7th. Anyway, then, but then I think like a bigger part of this is the extent to which Me Too itself is ancient history in the sort of social justice sphere. Right. In the in the world of current thingism, there have been like 15 different things since then. Yes. Many other current things. And I think that this idea, so both it's two things. It's both this idea that sort of Black Lives Matter took over from Me Too as the hashtag of the moment, and goodness knows however many other hashtags since have made their way, but also this idea of women specifically as not victims, but in fact, the oppressors. So you have the Karens, the TERFs, all of these ideas of the women who are 
weaponizing fragility, according to social justice type thinking, right? Right. You know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. So I think this fits very, very neatly into this idea of women weaponizing. Right. Suddenly every, every accuser is the woman who who said that Emmett Till whistled at her. Exactly. The Emmett Till thing. Exactly. 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 And the problem here is you say, okay, well, that may be if you're talking about Amy Schumer feeling like a victim. But if you're talking about actual Israeli women and girls who were you know, brutally raped and murdered, do they just imagine themselves? Is, is this a victimhood stance or are they, you know, raped and dead? Well, yeah, that's where it gets a little interesting. But anyway, that is, though, I think the framework that people are thinking about it. Then the other, another theory I have is that some people, including very progressive presenting ones, have very racist and patronizing ideas about Arabs and basically don't imagine that it would be possible for Arabs to, like, do war without <laughs> being extremely barbaric and like basically just give it a pass because they figure like, well, you know, <laughs> like I think that's probably entering into some of this, this kind of racist idea that like, but racist in this sort of like this weird philo-Palestinian racism, if that makes sense. You know, what's really funny about that, you have like both sides of that argument being made simultaneously. One that like, what well, what did you expect? Um, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe they were kind of entitled because like they can't help themselves. But also that to imagine that members of Hamas might have committed rapes is just indulging in a racist fantasy. Yes, that was oh, that's the oh, my goodness. Yes, I I saw somebody um, who's Jewish himself uh, posting this, which seemed interesting, interesting thoughts that go through people's minds. So that's, that's, I think, part of it. And I think just more broadly, that there's like a little bit of an underestimation of the extent to which the same people can be anti-Semitic and anti-Arab. And like, sometimes this exists in the same person. And it's not like people pick a team and they're, they aren't racist against multiple groups. But, um, and also this idea that if somebody's draped in a kafia at a protest, they couldn't possibly have kind of bigoted views about Arabs, which I don't think is true. Um, and then I do think like, so this is, and and then one of my theories is just that people really hate Jews, like not all people, hashtag, but you know, some. And then this idea, but then I think this is like maybe a little more complicated and this is me being galaxy brand, but especially in sort of American pop culture of the last however many years, um, Jewish women are really stereotyped as not fuckable, basically. <laughs> And I think there was something about this that just didn't add up for some people where it was like, really? Like somebody went in and there were all these Jewish women and they did what? <laughs> like that doesn't add up. But um, this is my me being galaxy brain. But I think it actually kind of adds up though in terms of the way people are now understanding Jews are suddenly like, I keep seeing these, like all these things about like how much skin cancer there is in Israel that basically Israelis are just like, blonde white people who, you know, have no history in the Middle East and, you know, are basically, you know, have you seen this? Do you know what I'm talking about? These kind of like progressive memes about how extremely blonde and blue eyed all Jews are? Yet a little bit, but the skin cancer thing is a new one. That's a, that's a fun wrinkle. Okay. Um, basically saying that they're, that Jews are not indigenous to this land because the the big gotcha is basically that, yes, like modern day Jewish populations have like a mixture of ancestry with some, you know, some Middle Eastern and some European. And then that's how you get this like 
apparently unfathomable thing of like a group of people who look like a bit darker than Eastern Europeans and a bit lighter than most Arabs on the whole. And- I like that they invented a whole new stereotype for this, actually, because hasn't historically the idea been that Jews are dark and swarthy and hairy and, you know, Middle Eastern looking? Yes. And the fact of the matter is Jews look in between on the whole. Obviously, individual Jews look all different ways, but on the whole, yes. People who look a little bit one way and a little bit another way, it's like apparently extremely nefarious um, to just go around looking a little bit like two different ways one might look and or more than two, whatever. So I think there's something about the fact that suddenly because the, well, it it changes. So it's about who's the sort of, who are Jews, the other two, right? And if it was, you know, Germans, yes, it was like, oh no, Jews have dark hair and it's terrible. That's how awful of them to do that. Um, but then if it's Palestinians and it's like, oh no, some Jews have blonde hair that how terrible of them to do that. Even though some Palestinians have blonde hair, such as the very famous, um, I guess now former prisoner whose, um, memoir or something is in the window of my local bookstore because it would be, um, but yeah, basically I do think there's something weird going on, um, with the idea of like Jewish women as victims of sexual violence. It's sort of like, it doesn't fit in anybody's little like categories, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I do think there's something though about this idea that like, you would think that, that the left would care. And like, would you though? Like, I mean, that's where I get stuff. Like, I don't know. Would I, would I think that I wouldn't really. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I would put myself in the disappointed, but not surprised category. And yet, I, I am a little bit surprised just because of the the sheer like barbarism of what happened and how much evidence there is of what happened. Like, look, you know, I have always thought that you should have a high bar when it comes to like providing evidence of really heinous crimes. You know, if you're going to accuse somebody of having committed a brutal rape or tried to, that ideally you you want to have a decent amount of evidence, like more than just more than just say so, hopefully, which is why, you know, I was really uncomfortable with a lot of what happened kind of at peak me Too, where you would have like an unsourced rumor that somebody did a rape, but you wouldn't have like an actual victim or you wouldn't have, um, you know, you wouldn't have anybody saying it happened to me. It was just, oh, I heard, I heard, I heard. Or you'd have one of these things where somebody was accused of having done something much less bad, like, I don't know, like, called his girlfriend a name or something and then through the kind of game of telephone that ensues all of a sudden like whisper 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 down the line and he's a rapist and everyone hates him and his life is ruined so like you know by all means rediscover the importance of of due process and of withholding judgment and of thoroughly investigating allegations before you leap to the conclusion that a rape occurred on the other hand like when you have members of Hamas saying yes, we raped women. And you have forensic scientists examining bodies and saying, yes, 
these bodies of women were raped. And you have IDF soldiers and EMS techs and people who, you know, survived like the massacre at the music festival all saying, yes, I saw women raped and shot. And you have like in the background of this footage, which, you know, I think we've probably all seen some of this at this point, even with the sensors blur on top, you can see these corpses that have clearly been violated in a very specific way. They're clearly naked from the waist down. Like, You've marshaled a lot of evidence there. Maybe just believe that that rape took place, especially when it's an extremely common weapon of war. Like it would be extremely weird amid a, an invasion like the one that occurred on October 7th for there to have been no sexual violence. And yet people are just still hemming and hawing and hedging about how they need more. And I... I keep wondering, like, what would satisfy these people? Like, do they just want to see an actual pornographic snuff film? Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say that I, I feel like some of the people who want to see more just want to see more, which is um, certainly like given what's on the internet, I'm sure there are people who want to see more, but like, eh, that's not really like a political concern. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen a lot, I've seen this sort of outright denials, which seem to be like, you can throw evidence at it. But you're not really trying to convince the person who's denying it. You're more trying to, I feel like there you're trying to convince the people who see the people denying it and don't know what to think. You know what I mean? I think the people who genuinely refuse to listen, they refuse to listen. They're unreachable. You know what I mean? But yeah. I think the other um, the other thing is that I've what I've seen more of is like people saying, look at what's happened in Gaza. Look what's happening in Gaza. Look at the history that matters more. And to mention this, it, it's like it's like the equivalent of the argument that you shouldn't talk about rape on college campuses because look at all the rape that's happening elsewhere. And this is kind of like, yes, bad stuff happened, but only but why are we focusing on the privileged few who were merely um, raped and, you know, brutally chopped up by Hamas, but, you know, when there is all of this stuff happening in Gaza. Now, you might think about like, well, why is this happening in Gaza? Is it because Israel is just mean or is it, you know, a war which is maybe overreaching, maybe not? I'm not really <laughs> qualified to weigh in on that angle of things, but obviously Israel had to do something, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been maybe this exact something isn't the something it should have done. I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe not. Like this, this to me feels like beyond my, you know, military expertise, but obviously it had to do something. And the idea that like, you can somehow equate. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, not funny. I, I got to stop saying that. But there's this kind of like almost weird like playground logic to it that if, you know, Hamas comes in and kills a bunch of people and takes a bunch of hostages and then runs back to Gaza and says, no backsies, like that Israel has to just respect that. I mean, I'm just obsessed with this um, because somebody who is, I guess, some left-wing Jew, given that he has in his blue sky emojis, he has a watermelon and a Jewish star, and also from what I looked his bio, whatever. I love the watermelon. It's now you can't you can't tell if somebody is pro-Palestinian or just incredibly racist. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I I guess he says that he's he's troubled about the denials or whatever of the and he links to the Slate article um, co-written by a bunch of um, experts in this area, including Dahlia Lithwick about um, about the sexual assaults and all of this. And then Josh Marshall of Talking Points Memo fame is on Blue Sky. Right, his response is it's a tough thing. 
On the one hand, there are Hasbarist undertones, so like pro-Israel um, propaganda, you know, undertones to the messaging. On the other, yeah, it's true. Much of what happened on October 7th rapidly became old news, and the sheer horror, rapes, torture simply don't register in the international conversation or among many domestic allies in the USA. It's a tough thing. Is it a tough thing, though? Is it actually a tough thing? Is it an on the one hand, on the other hand? Is the fact that Israel might mention this in its propaganda, in its promotional materials, in its PR, that Israel might mention the fact that, you know, this just happened, just happened? Is that, I mean, like... In Josh Marshall's defense, he's completely brain poisoned. So you got to allow for that. (laughs) Well, I hope he enjoys his time hosted by the lovely hosts. You know, I know, I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, it it just, I see this and like, I feel that I'm just going to lose my mind and I'm just going to be one of these nuts who goes around draped 24-7 in an Israeli flag screaming. You know what I mean? Because like, I see this and I'm just like, what is wrong with people? I see this and I'm just like, what is wrong? Like, you don't actually have to have any particular view. Like, I genuinely don't know how Israel should respond in a military way. Like, I, I know it has to do something in a military way. I don't know exactly how. I'm not the one deciding this. Well, look, I'll say flag draped and screaming would be a a good look for you. I think you could pull it off if you wanted to. Um, But, uh, you know, the whole thing is it is it is not a tough thing, but it is messy. I do think it's unfortunate because so much information just flooded out immediately that, you know, wasn't true or was only half true. You had stories which, you know, horrific stories like this thing about a baby in an oven that I I guess was proved to have not happened, which, you know, thank God it didn't. Um, but on the other hand, emotionally driven stories like that marshaled a lot of sympathy for Israel. And when they turn out not to be true, it does set a difficult precedent for other stories that are true to be believed. Yes, but on the other hand, on the other hand, to, to do the, the Josh Marshall, right? Mm-hmm. You get pictures, tons of pictures of Syria that people are claiming are Palestine. Oh, yeah, no, so, it's, ha- it's happening on both sides. I think, I think you have to just assume baseline that a lot of what you're seeing on the internet from either side is probably... Like, I've had to unfollow accounts that are just basically constantly retweeting PR type or propaganda or whatever, like of this very like emotional overwrought propaganda of even, you know, like of both sides, I should say, like I have had to, like, it's just too much and it's not informing me about anything. Right. And that's totally reasonable. I think the other unfortunate thing is that Israel was attacked unprovokedly you know, you can say, well, there was historical context and sure, yeah, but still, you know, there was a ceasefire in place on October 6th. It was broken by October 7th by one side and that side was not Israel. And yet there's this expectation that in everything, Israel will be restrained in its response, in the stories it releases, in its quote unquote propaganda, in a way that nobody expects the Palestinian side to be because Israel is stronger. It's like that thing where, you know, your little brother hits you and you hit him back and your parents get mad at you, but not at him because you're bigger and you're more mature and you should be expected to exercise restraint. And I think it's, I don't know. I mean, I think in some ways it's really bullshit that you have this dynamic playing out on like a global geopolitical stage when it comes to people actually being killed. But on the other hand, it's what's happening. And I don't really know what you do about that. 
I feel completely like I don't know what you do about any of it. I mean, it just seems like it's reached this level where like, you just get a lot of people who seem to think, well, okay, well, we'll just move, we'll move Israel, we'll just do it, we'll just pick it up and put it somewhere else, or we'll just disperse everybody in it. And that's treated like, not only like a sort of feasible thing, but like that somehow wouldn't be ethnic cleansing because it's just reversing something that shouldn't have been done in the first place, right? So that's how it's viewed, right? Mm-hmm. On a lot of, it's not even just progressives I've seen saying this, you know, it's people with all different policies. Well, just you move Israel, just get rid of it and that'll solve everything. And it's like, first of all, I mean, not to be that person, I'm going to be that person. The Holocaust happened before there was Israel, you know, and there's no reason to think that Jews are safer without it. You know, I really don't think that makes any sense. But also, it just misses where Israeli Jews, it it misses the extent to which it's just an existing country, you know, Mm -hmm. it it misses where the people in it are actually from, which is by and large, not that far from it. (laughs) And or it's certainly sometimes geographically far from it. It's not like Morocco is, you know, like right there, but it's more like in terms of the Western social justice take of who's from where, you know, Morocco's not, you know, Germany. And yeah, I mean, it's just like, I think that the plot just seems so extremely lost at this point, like this discussion of like, well, you know, it's cultural appropriation if somebody says Israeli food exists at all, you know, and all of this stuff. And that's just, that's, yeah, I I don't know. I feel like it's just, if if I were Israeli at this point, I really would be like, I don't care what people outside of Israel think about any of this. Yeah. And that would be reasonable also. I mean, there's this real kind of a historicism to a lot of the discourse around this. Um, people, I, I think genuinely many of the people discussing this, maybe even the most vocally, seem to have no idea that Mizrahi Jews are a thing. No, definitely not. Um, which I don't, maybe, I can't imagine that anybody listening to this is uninitiated into what a Mizrahi Jew is, but these are Jews from the Middle East, from Arab countries who were expelled um, in pogroms and whatnot and ca- and cannot go back. Israel is their only home. And who, who right, from the Middle East or North Africa and whose cuisine is that of those regions and not of Europe. They do not have some like primal matzo ball soup that they were making in, you know, Iraq. Uh, yeah, it's just, and, uh, and also that's not who is necessarily, to put it mildly, the most left wing in Israel. So this is like, it doesn't fit with the whole sort of North American understanding of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, oh, well, this person has the people with the blonde hair on the right and the people with the dark hair on the left. It's like, that's okay. Yes. And there's, there's something about this and I'm going to have to make this my last point because then I have to, I have to go. Um, so I think that what you've got, I've talked about fandom as the sort of organizing principle behind a lot of this. I think it's very, very prevalent in this aspect of things where people are like, they're watching this conflict unfold like it's a movie and they are searching for tropes that will help them easily understand what they're seeing as though they were watching a movie. And the result when you're trying to apply this to a complex geopolitical situation is absolutely obscene. You have things like people, you know, analyzing these photos of the hostages coming home like it's a Zabruder film and being like, well, look, they look happy. Um, you know, look at this girl. I think she's in love with her captors, actually. You know, the. Oh, yeah. Oh, we don't have. Ah, oh, this is if you have to go, we don't have time for for. But that is that is a whole. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right that people are just trying to, well, I think people are taking advantage of the fact that there's 
a, a, a lot of confusion about what's real and what isn't. And um, but they have no skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. It's like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's real. It matters that you've decided to root for a team and you're and you're you know spinning a narrative. It's not even an argument. It's not even a debate. Like and the facts don't matter because it's just it's all vibes. That's it. Did you have anything that you wanted to say before we wrap up? I would like to go and find where the Hamas leadership is and take that spray rig from France and just have it. (laughs) That would be my contribution to the military effort, which is why nobody needs me in their military. Anyway. I was going to suggest, you know, if we are looking to relocate Israel, perhaps we could uh, start by just putting everybody into, we can put it into the 6,000 square foot house on Cape Cod. It'll fit, right? It'll fit. It just might, though. Um, Yeah, certainly seems that way. Well, has this been Feminine Chaos? This has been Feminine Chaos. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Bye.